Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. And I'll read the first few verses for us now as we prepare to hear from lead pastor Travis Simone as he helps us continue in our summer sermon series titled Questioning Jesus. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness at noon. That's what the sixth hour means. There was darkness at noon. This is the bleak picture that Matthew paints for us. Imagine how unnerving this scene must have been. Not that the sun took a little longer to rise at the dawn or, or the sundown and dusk crept in a little early. No, no, no. There was darkness at noon. Not simply darkness, but darkness at the time of the day when the sun should be brightest. The darkness points us back to how the prophets pictured an event they called the day of the Lord. An event where the Lord would come and bring judgment upon sin in the world. Amos chapter five, verse 18 says this. What sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here, you have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. You see, the darkness makes visible what sin does to the world. It doesn't allow us to see God's goodness clearly. It doesn't allow us to experience the goodness of God's creation. Darkness makes visible what sin does to the world, as well as reveal God's judgment on that sin. The darkness also points us back to the earliest pages of the Bible. In Genesis chapter one, verse two, we read this. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, when the world was in its uncreated state, darkness hovers over the surface of the deep. Matthew is painting this picture for us where creation is caving back in on itself. Creation's caving back in on itself right on top of Jesus. See, in Genesis, the Spirit of God hovers over the darkness in Matthew, the darkness hovers over God in the person of Jesus Christ. So my question for us this morning is what does Jesus do in the darkness? As the darkness comes, as the darkness hovers, as the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord looms, what does Jesus do in the darkness? Jesus cries in the darkness. 
And about the ninth hour, that's three o'clock, three hours of darkness from noon to three. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus' cry communicates a sense of confusion. Why is this happening, God? I don't understand. Why, Jesus says. Jesus' cry communicates a sense of despair. Why have you forsaken me? This is called the present perfect tense. It's a past action that continues to have impact in the present moment. I I say Jesus' cry communicates despair because this is something that has already happened and is continuing to impact him in the present moment. It's not something he imagines that he could avoid. It's not something he thinks that he will escape with the right prayer. It's a cry of despair. It's something that has happened that continues to impact him in the present moment. It's a cry of abandonment. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you left, God? And it's a cry of isolation. Why have you forsaken me? Why did it have to happen to me? Why am I the one experiencing this? What does Jesus do in the dark? Jesus cries in the dark. And Jesus is misunderstood in the dark. Or maybe better said, Jesus suffers misunderstanding in the dark. Look at verses 47 and four, through 49 with me. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. You see, the Old Testament ends with a prophecy. The prophecy is that Elijah will return before the Messiah, the anointed one or the anointed king, the one that would usher in God's rule and reign on earth as in heaven, that Elijah would come as a predecessor to the Messiah. We read it in Malachi chapter four, verses five and six. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And with those words, the Old Testament ends. That's it. That's the final prophecy of the Old Testament, that Elijah will come before this great day of the Lord. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but how could he be the Messiah, they thought, if Elijah had not come? They didn't understand his words back in Matthew chapter 11 where he said, if you have the eyes to see Elijah, the spirit of Elijah has come in John the Baptist. They missed the sign of Elijah, the spirit of Elijah in John the Baptist. And so the onlookers here misunderstand this cry 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. They hear Eli, Eli, and they hear a form of Elijah. He must be calling on Elijah to vindicate him. He told us he was the Messiah. It's a last-ditch effort. Elijah, please come. If you come, they may know. They may know that I am the Messiah. They will see that I am the one that God sent to set the world right. When Jesus is in the darkness, Jesus is misunderstood. He suffers misunderstanding. As his onlookers imagine, he's trying one final time ineffectively to prove he is, in fact, the Messiah. In the moment that Jesus shares his most intimate emotions, what he's feeling on that cross, he's completely misunderstood. Jesus is misunderstood in the darkness. And Jesus trusts God in the dark. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The Gospel of Luke records what Jesus said when he let out this second cry. The Gospel of Luke, the second cry of Jesus is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This isn't just something, this isn't something Jesus just thought up on the spot. It's a quote from Psalm 31.5. Here's the whole verse. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. You see, at the moment of death, the precise moment when it seems like God's faithfulness has run out of 11th hour options to rescue, Jesus trusts God in the dark. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This verse also points us back to verse 46. If you're taking notes or you have a Bible, you can circle the word cried in verse 50 and circle the word cried in verse 46. They're actually different words, and it's in the Greek language in which Matthew is writing, and it's intentional. Matthew is using this second cry of Jesus to call you back to the first cry of Jesus. The same word here translated as cried is used three times in Psalm 22, which is what Jesus is quoting when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the opening line to Psalm 22. But how could this be interpreted as a statement of trust? Why would Matthew point us back to that moment? It's been traditionally called a, a cry of, of dereliction. I believe it's a cry of affirmation of Jesus' trust in his Father. You see, we've been saying all summer long that Jesus does not ask questions because he needs information. Jesus asks questions because we need instruction. And even at the very end, as Jesus is breathing his last breaths, he is instructing us with the words of Psalm 22. Jesus does not say, my people, my people, 
Why has God forsaken me? He's not looking out to those around him saying, how could God be doing this to me? He doesn't say, my family, my family, where are you? How could you have left me? He doesn't even say, my disciples, my disciples, why did you abandon me? And Matthew records that they are not there at this moment. The men that followed him, where did they go? He doesn't address them. No, Jesus directly addresses God himself with his feelings of frustration, with the bold, I'm not letting go of you claim. My God, my God. Jesus is grabbing on to God till the very end. No, 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 you're mine. My God, my God. There's a wonderful commentary written by a man named Dale Bruner that talks about this moment as one of the greatest pictures of faith in the Bible. Dale Bruner writes this. When Jesus asked God about God's absence, when Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? Jesus may have taught faith better than at any other story in the gospel. Finally, real faith may be calling on God even when experience says God is not there. Now that's worth repeating. Real faith may be calling on God even when experience says God is not there. In addition, there were no chapters and verses assigned to the pages of Scripture. There really weren't any pages of Scripture yet. They were... The Bible was written on scrolls. And so the way that people pointed to particular parts of Scripture, the way that people located things in the Bible, was by referencing or quoting the first line of a particular passage. This is why the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, the original title was In the Wilderness, because the first line of the book of Numbers, you see Moses is in the wilderness with God's people. This is why the book of Lamentations was originally entitled, How? Because the first line of the book of Lamentations is, How lonely sits the city. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, it's like someone today saying, hey, by the way, open your Bible to Psalm 22. Look at what's there, read it. I'll press my case a little further to say, Jesus, if this was just a private prayer between him and the Father, he could have prayed it privately. He could have prayed it quietly. He could have prayed it silently. But Matthew is clear in verse 46 that he cries out with a loud voice. He wants other people to hear it. Hey, look, Psalm 22, see what's going on there. And so I want to walk us through Psalm 22, and I'm going to read a significant portion of the psalm. Just let these words and these themes wash over you as I read them aloud. Verses 1 through 8, this is the psalmist, David in this instance, offering a a meditation on the theme of trust, which is exactly what Jesus is communicating in Matthew 27. 
Pick up the theme of trust here, verses one through eight. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verses 16 through 18 move on to what I'll call a prophecy to instruct. Remember, Jesus does not ask questions because he needs information. He's asking questions because we need instruction. And here is a prophecy right in plain sight in Psalm 22 that Jesus is using to teach those watching till the very end. Verses 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now this is written thousands of years before the form of execution, crucifixion, was even invented by the Roman Empire. It's a prophecy of the Messiah to come, what he would suffer. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. When Jesus says, hey, look at Psalm 22 by quoting its first line, he's saying, don't you see what was written about me? You think that I'm calling on Elijah to prove I'm the Messiah? Look back at Psalm 22. You're acting out the very things it said would happen. Verses 19 through 21, we see that the psalmist and Jesus, their trust is not misplaced, 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox, wild oxen. You see, the cry for help goes out, and the psalmist says, you have, you have rescued me in this moment. You can trust even in the darkness, and that trust is not misplaced. And finally, verses 22 to 24, we see a commitment to continue trusting and praising God in light of God's rescue. Verses 22 to 24. I will tell of your name to my brothers, In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And, excuse me, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. There's been this 
idea that somehow crept into the church, people almost take it as axiomatic that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That somehow he is referring to this moment when the Trinity was separated and God must turn away because he, he can't look upon the sin that Jesus is taking on. I suppose it's an interesting idea. It's just exactly the opposite of what the psalm that Jesus quoted says. For he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. It is not a cry of dereliction, suffering in God's absence. It's a cry of trust, affirming God's presence even in the midst of the darkness. So what does Jesus do in the dark? Jesus cries in the dark. Jesus is misunderstood in the dark. And Jesus trusts God in the dark. I heard a story of a pastor this week. The pastor took over for a well-known founding pastor of a large, large church. And as soon as he took over, uh, there was a lot of controversy about some of the the changes that were made uh, in the church. The church started to suffer some decline. He tried to lead as best he could through that decline. But he had to make more changes because the financial realities were, were different. And people were upset that the founding pastor had Left And any church growth expert will, will tell you, if you have a, a charismatic founding uh, senior pastor, when that person leaves, uh, the next person that comes, that's going to be a, a difficult assignment. On top of it all, there was the dot-com bust in the early 2000s. This church was in the Bay Area. This accelerated change even more And the change kind of fed on itself. The financial decline fed on itself. And all of a sudden, this pastor found himself having to make a plan to lay off a significant portion of the staff. He felt like so many people were angry at him. Uh, Every email and call escalated the vitriol that they felt toward their pastor. And he began to battle deep anxiety. He battled this anxiety and battled this anxiety. And as it led up to the time to to lay off the staff, he stopped being able to sleep. He said, he tells the story, he said, I didn't sleep for two weeks. Maybe I had micro sleep here or there, but I don't remember actually going to sleep. He said he felt like he was being tortured. And at the end of about two weeks, um, many people have been through this likely know what happened, he began to cry uncontrollably. Something broke inside him. He began to cry uncontrollably, and he shouted out, I'm empty. We all have some version of that story in our lives. 
We've all cried out in the dark from something that we're experiencing, something that has happened to us. We've all screamed, I'm empty, I'm exhausted, I'm scared, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm sad, I'm numb, I'm disappointed. Whatever it is, we've all said it and we've all cried in the dark. I could tell other stories, stories from my own life of when I felt so misunderstood in the darkness. When you feel like you're in this dark moment and nobody knows what you're going through and nobody knows how to talk to you about it. So the question is not, will you cry in the dark? The question is not, will you be misunderstood in the dark? The question is, will we trust God in the dark? That's what's on the table in this passage. Jesus cries, Jesus is misunderstood, but Jesus trusts, will we? And you might say, I just can't, it's too dark. Or what difference would it make if I was to trust God in the dark? And here's what I hope we all remember going home today. Through Jesus, even the darkness of death is the door to new life. Through Jesus, even the darkness of death is the door to new life. Let me read verses 51 through 55. We read this. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open, and the bodies of many of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Note what happens immediately following Jesus' death. The curtain in the temple is torn, the earth shakes, tombs open, there's a profession of faith, and there's a faithful remnant that we see. Let me walk through each of these. The, t- the curtain of the temple was torn. Everywhere you went in the temple, there were barriers all over the place. If you were not a Jew, you could go as far as the barrier for the Gentiles, and you could not enter the court of the Gentiles. If you were Jewish, but you were a woman, you could go beyond the barrier of the Gentiles, but you could not go beyond the barrier for women. You could only go so far. At one point, only men could go further. And if you were a man, you could go beyond the barrier for women, but eventually you got to the place, the sanctuary. You couldn't go beyond because there was a barrier said, only priests can go this far. And if you were a priest, you could go all the way in to the barrier, beyond the barrier for the priests. But there was another curtain, the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, the holy place. And only the high priest could go in once a year 
on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And you see the final barrier is torn. And Matthew notes that it is torn from top to bottom. And this is a key detail because if it was torn from bottom to top, that, that could have been a human being that started the tear and started this project. Let's open it up. Let's open up the system. This curtain, historically, we know, is 80 feet tall. And yet it tears from top to bottom. It's God's activity that tears the temple. God's activity saying, I'm tearing down the barrier to my presence. From now on, my presence is available to all through faith in what Jesus has just done on the cross. The earth shook and the rocks were split. This is a picture of God breaking through the old creation with the new creation. In the book of Romans, we read that creation is groaning under the weight of sin. And, and here we see creation longing to burst forth the new creation of God. The tombs were open. This is my favorite part of the story because it's the strangest part of the story, but it's so beautiful. The tombs are opened. Not only is Jesus' death strong enough to split the veil of the Holy of Holies and so conquer sin, it is also strong enough to open tombs and so conquer death. These are humanity's two biggest problems. The problem of sin, the evil we do to each other, the evil we do to God's good creation, and the consequence of sin, the consequence is with the evil that we do to each other, the evil we do to God's good creation, the consequence of all of that is that we are separated from a holy God through death. It's our two biggest problems as humanity. And here the curtain is torn, sin is conquered, the tombs are open, death is conquered. It's like a kid on Christmas that can't go to sleep the kid knows what, what might be coming in the morning, that there may be joy in the morning, but right now all he sees is emptiness in his living room, and the kid begs his parents just to taste mom and dad. You know how I know that story? I was that kid. I bet you were too. Often it was about 2 a.m., just to taste just a taste of what's to come in the darkness of this Christmas Eve night. And God in his kindness says, I'm gonna give you just a taste. I'm gonna give you just a taste of the power of not just my resurrection, the power of my death to open tombs. The centurion said, truly this was the son of God. Murderers become believers. The people that are acting out the very execution place their faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, many women were there. Many women there. The disciples are scattered. It looks like all is lost. The people who are most faithful to him are gone. But all is not lost. There's a faithful remnant to carry on Jesus' message. All of this points to the truth 
that through Jesus, even the darkness of death is the door to new life. You see, Jesus said, those who wish to save their lives will lose them. But those who lose their lives will save them. And so here's the challenge for us this morning. The challenge is to follow Jesus through the darkness of death into new life. Is there an honest cry you need to share with God? Is there a misunderstanding you need to surrender to God? Is there a situation in which your trust has wavered? Follow Jesus through the darkness of death. It's the doorway to the new life you've longed for. I confess, following Jesus through the darkness of death into new life. It's the most counterintuitive, ideological, philosophical, or theological framework anyone could ever imagine. It's completely counterintuitive. But Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, Hamlet said that death is the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Founder of Buddhism was initially a, a great prince. His parents sheltered him in the palace. They didn't want him to experience some of the terrible things in the world. Finally, one day when he's older, he sneaks out. And you know what he sees? He sees a dead person. He asks his companion, what's that? His companion says, it's a, it's a dead person. And he says, what is death? He says, death is the end. All of us are impermanent. And Buddha creates this entire philosophy around this idea that our suffering in this life is caused by our attachment to impermanent things. If we all ultimately die, that's why we suffer. We're too attached to things that don't last. And in the gospel, we understand, oh, no, 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 no. It's all permanent. You're permanent. I'm permanent. The dead will be raised. The dead will be raised to a resurrection of new life through faith in Jesus Christ, or the dead will be raised to condemnation and judgment. But the dead will be raised. And the earth, there's a new heavens and, and a new earth that we read in the book of Revelation. It's counterintuitive that the way to life would be through this door of death, the place where no one will ever look. That's where God placed the path to new life. And yet, the place where no one will ever look is the same place that everyone will eventually bump into. It's counterintuitive. But through Jesus, the darkness of death is the doorway to new life. Tim Keller is a pastor I'm very fond of listening to and following. And he had his 
funeral service uh, this past week in New York City. He recently died of pancreatic cancer. And his son recorded his last words when he was announcing his death. He said that his mom and his dad were alone, married for 48 years, that Tim kissed his wife on the forehead and said, there is no downside for me leaving, not even in the slightest. How could he say that? I love reading his books. I love listening to his sermons. His congregation loved having him as their pastor. And yet he says, there's no downside for me leaving, not even in the slightest. Because through Jesus, the darkness of death is the doorway to new life. Can you, through the eyes of faith this morning, embrace that completely counterintuitive truth and follow Jesus through the darkness of death into new life. Thanks so much for joining us. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, we hope that during our summer sermon series, you will receive God's life-giving instruction as we examine Jesus in the Gospels questioning us.